Good morning. Um, I just wanted to start off by saying thank y'all so much. It's the first time that we are doing a podcast with another organization. So I just think that it's really important to share this broader viewpoint with our listeners because I think we get sometimes so pigeonholed into just thinking about one thing that we forget that there are all of these other broader issues going on in Indian country that um, we may not even be aware of. And so I'm really looking forward to helping broaden not just everyone else's perspective, but my perspective as well, because you all, you know, you can always learn something new for sure. So thank you, Liz and Kitki, so much for doing this with me and for joining us on a place called Porch. Why don't we start off by the two of you just introducing yourselves and Kitki, I'll volley to you first. Okay, thank you. Apivawana, Nahishave, Kitki Carroll, Natista. Good morning. My name is Kitki Carroll. I am Cheyenne Arapaho, um, citizen of the Cheyenne Arapaho tribe. I am executive director for United South and Eastern Tribes and the United South and Eastern Tribes Sovereignty Protection Fund. And I've been with the organization for about 13 years. So good morning and thank you for having us. Good morning. And Liz, what about you? What do you do for you, Set? And what's your role? Hi, good morning. I'm Liz Malerba. I am Director of Policy and Legislative Affairs for the USIT Sovereignty Protection Fund, which is headquartered in Washington, D.C. Um, we engage in all uh, of the education and advocacy on behalf of our 33 member tribal nations. And I'm a citizen of the Mohegan tribe. Again, so happy to have y'all here with us this morning as we talk about some really important issues um, concerning tribal lands and really just offering a broader perspective to our audience members on not just um, what is affecting us here in in Alabama, but also what might our other tribes in the USAID organization be facing when it comes to tribal lands and property rights and that sort of thing? Um, but you mentioned the name USAID, and of course, that's who both of you um, work work with, work for. So what is USAID, you know, c- kind of provide maybe an, uh, a better understanding of what USAID is about and really what USAID offers um, for its members? Here, I'll take that one uh, and I'll give you the elevator speech summary of that. <laughs> Um, so USET, United South and Eastern Tribes, is a 51c3 not-for-profit. Uh, it was established in 1969 uh, by our four founding tribal nations, uh, Eastern Band, Seminole, Miccosukee, and Mississippi Band of Choctaw. Um, our motto is strength and unity. So the very thing that you're talking about from a regional standpoint of the tribal nations that extend from the northeastern woodlands down the Atlantic coast, down to the Everglades, and then across the Gulf Coast. Uh, so primarily, uh, but not completely, but primarily east of the Mississippi River uh, in tribal nations that are often invisible in the larger uh, Indian country scene uh, in terms of people's awareness of tribal nations east of the Mississippi. Um, so the whole point of the establishment of this organization was to bring visibility uh, to uh, the tribal nations in this part of the region, um, who on top of that also have, you know, 200 plus years of experience with the United States, including its performative years. So uh, as we engage in these nation-to-nation, government-to-government, sovereign-to-sovereign relations, uh, the tribal nations in this part of the country have a very unique experience uh, with the United States. Um, so there's 
two organizations, as you heard us, Liz and I both introduced at the very beginning. And I already realized in saying this, I'm way past my elevator speech. Um, <laughs> That's all right. That's yeah, okay. Uh, it's a very it's a long elevator ride. Exactly. So on the USET side, uh, it's about promoting, um, improving quality of life for tribal citizens, improving the capabilities of the governments uh, of our tribal nation members. So we do that through a variety of programmatic uh, services, uh, spe specifically in the area of health, uh, economic development, and environment and natural resources. Uh, one example, um, when COVID hit, we are the region's tribal epidemiology center. So uh, we are also uh, a 638 contractor with the United States. We provide a variety of health um, support services to our member tribal nations. Um, we do weight water, wastewater work. We do climate change work. We do economic development work, uh, a variety of programmatic services specifically in those areas. Uh, and we recognize that that's only a part of, you know, the, the programmatic services that our member tribal nations provide to their citizens. As we grew and evolved over the years, you know, part of influencing federal lending policy requires direct engagement in Washington, D.C. Um, and in that policy making space. So there's limits to what a C3 can do in that space. So um, with the guidance of our tribal, le tribal leaders, our board of directors, in 2012-13, we started talking about the creation of a separate organization uh, to do the policy litigation uh, and legislation work that we do. And uh, so that was formally approved in 2014 as a separate 51C4 uh, called USET Sovereignty Protection Fund. And that is to promote, protect, and advocate on behalf of the inherent sovereign rights and authorities of our member tribal nations. Um, but I would just mention at this stage of the conversation, while our membership is dictated by tribal nations in our geographic footprint, the work that this organization does has national impact. Um, so when we're talking about influencing federal lending policy, that's not just for the benefit of you said tribal members, uh, but for all of the country. And the way that we view it is if the goal of this organization is to elevate the visibility of tribal nations in this region, um, to bring those unique histories and circumstances and understanding to the equation, then the best way to do that is not to hold ourselves hostage within our own region, but to try to shape the overall federal and policy space that not only benefits us, but also benefits all of the country. Uh, I would also make a, a very clear distinction at the beginning of this interview that uh, the work that we do is not lobbying. Uh, we are not representing any one of our member tribal nations. We are advocating on their behalf. And the reason that why that is so critically important to the work that we do is if we're going to say that this is a special and unique relationship between tribal nations and the United States, um, we are not a lobbying interest. We're not oil. We are not gas. We are not pharmaceuticals. Uh, we are engaged in diplomacy with the United States. Uh, and therefore, that's why we don't talk about the work that we do as lobbying. It's, it's the education, it's the advocacy and the awareness. Um, but going back to our geographic footprint, within that foot profile are 33 fully recognized tribal nations uh, who are our members today uh, from the original four. And so um, one of the things that I really want to make sure that we talk about is why land is so important and how that ties into sovereignty for tribal nations. And he made a really wonderful point in saying that what one tribe does or what a collection of 33 tribes do is also linked to what happens across Indian country. And so you have to be very mindful when you're talking about um, 
you know, things like land and property and sovereignty, that the things that you're doing, even if it's, you know, taking into consideration those 33 tribes, there is a direct linkage and a direct impact also for the tribes across the United States and the nation. And so I kind of just want to start off there about um this is so just to give a little bit more background, um, this is the fourth part in a series that we've been doing on land. And we've ta- kind of explored it from, a his, you know, historical, historically from for porch um, to a legal perspective. And then um, also just kind of a present day, what is porch doing? But I wanted to end this series on providing a foundation that gives a broader understanding for land and property rights for tribes across the United States, but particularly in the USET region. So let's start off there about why why do you feel land holds such importance for our tribal communities and especially the USET tribes? Um, Before I tackle that, just one thing I want to highlight from what you just said uh, in terms of how something for one can impact everybody. And one issue that Liz and I know and this organization knows is critically important to Porch is the Carteri issue, right? The 2009 disastrous Supreme Court decision about fee to trust, land into trust. We are well aware because the way that this relationship is structured, uh, that when things make it their way to the United States Supreme Court, while it may have started out with one, it, it will impact all. Right. So we'll visit and touch base on car chair, I'm sure, later on in this discussion. Uh, But I just wanted to highlight that in terms of the importance of how, you know, one thing can impact all of us, maybe to varying degrees. But the fundamentals are the same. The principles are the same and they impact us at all. But to your question about land, you know, land is the foundation for everything. Right. I want to underscore the importance of this, this distinction between membership, citizenship and government status. Right. So in order to provide government services to your citizenship base, you need land as a foundation to be able to do that. You need land to exert your inherent sovereign rights and authorities. Never mind all the other things that are that come along with land, whether that's spirituality, creation, origin stories, um, culture, traditions, language, all of that is tied to land. But in terms of a government status, it's the very foundation for you to then enforce your jurisdictional authorities, right? To provide services to your citizens within those jurisdictional boundaries, law enforcement, emergency response services, uh, social services, child, all these things that a government is responsible for. You need land as the foundation for that. The other part of that too is economics, right? So when we talk about nation rebuilding, uh, building strong and vibrant tribal economies, that is also rooted in land as well. So land, you know, and I understand I haven't heard them yet, but your summary of the previous podcast, uh, I understand went through the history of land, land loss, the exchange of land, natural resources, et cetera. Um, so where we are today is a situation where we have to remember all of this was Indian country land, right? So we're having a conversation about the USET region, but the entirety of what is now called the United States was indigenous land, right? The entirety of what that is North America is, was at one point all indigenous land. And this, this, this history that is often not told and from our perspective, intentionally not told has resulted in massive land loss. So we are in a place now today, despite those policies of assimilation, termination, where we are trying to reacquire lands, 
uh, to reestablish that foundation, to be able to exert those inherent sovereign authorities um, that we've always had. Now, federal Indian policy has tried to reshape that throughout history, but those have always inherently been our rights. So in order to do that most effectively, in order to provide for a strong community like you're talking about, in order for a connection for our people uh, to their government, to their nation, you need land as the foundation for that. Liz, was there anything that you wanted to add to that? A couple of things. I would say, one, um, in terms of the importance of land, just to put a finer point on some of this, um, land also represents the opportunity for tribal nations to qualify uh, to administer or to receive government programs and services. Um, without land, uh, you very often are, are at a disadvantage um, in that regard. And, and then I just think, you know, the story of land loss, um, and the story of colonization, um, and the story of rebuilding our lands, you know, I think it really behooves us to talk about sort of the tension that we find ourselves in right now. And I'm sure you're getting to this. Um, but, you know, now we find ourselves um, at odds with the jurisdictions that have grown up around us, um, often as the result of the takings of our lands. Um, but when we're approaching those jurisdictions, there's this failure to recognize that. There's this failure to recognize the basis under which they are able to operate their locality or their city. Um, they exist because of the takings of our lands. Um, and as we are attempting to restore our land bases, um, that is not how they are approaching this they're approaching it as though we are we are taking their lands we are taking their jurisdiction away from them um as opposed to us restoring what was once ours to begin with i think that's a really wonderful point liz and just to kind of finish out this this question um one thing that i want to acknowledge is that there are tribes that actually do not have um, lands that have been taken into trust for them. So what impacts are you all seeing economically and culturally for those tribes? Well, again, you know, I think so from an economic standpoint, um, you know, land land is fundamental to the opportunity to uh, to operate an economy. Um, and, and certainly from the perspective of many tribal nations, um, you know, you cannot, you cannot operate under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act if, without trust land, for example. Um, but, but very often, you know, if your land is not in trust, then you are not able to kind of fully manage that land for whatever economic purpose you choose. Um, from a cultural standpoint, um, you know, that means that you are not often able to protect your cultural resources, um, whether that be burials, whether that be sacred sites. Um, again, you, you run into this tension with other jurisdictions who are managing that land or, or with private landowners who, who simply don't have a depth of understanding about the importance of that particular site to you. One thing I want to uh, add to that, uh, to the discussion on um, trust lands is 
the idea, well, let me back up for a second. So it is critically important to have land for all the reasons that we've discussed already. But the fee to trust, land into trust uh, model uh, is also a reflection of something that this organization is tackling, which is a modernization of the trust relationship, what that really should look like. I think, so absent having fee to trust, we're talking fee simple, right? Which the state, the county then have jurisdictional authority over, they can tax, all that sort of stuff. So that that does not align with the tribe executing its inherent sovereign rights and authorities. We all know that. Um, and to Liz's point, this is why we get a lot of pushback, even in the Cartier area, for tax reasons. For But the bigger reason is a refusal to acknowledge and respect our inherent sovereign rights and authorities, right? So they try to uh, prevent that from happening, those land acquisitions. But one of the things that I think a lot of people don't appreciate, even about the fee-to-trust model, is that trust by definition, at least the fee-to-trust by definition, is for the beneficial occupancy of the tribal nation. Right. So it's not even full ownership. And one of the things that our leadership talks about uh, more and more frequently, if we're talking about inherent rights, full rights being respected and acknowledged, then it means provide us what is due to us and then get out of our way. Right. Because part of sovereignty means uh, having success and making failures. But the model that we have right now really tries to prevent tribes from having the experience to even fall down, right? And if you do, then there's going to be all sorts of consequent, negative consequences and penalties and whatsoever. There are other models that some people might not even be aware of, like in the restricted fee model, um, which is only present in some parts of Indian country, but that's full ownership of those lands. So while fee to trust is extremely important for all the reasons that Liz just said, and while it is much, much better than a fee simple model, if we're going to talk about full rights and authorities being respected and acknowledged, that means that we should be able to use those lands in any way that we want, right? So even though that the lands that are in trust have federal protections, et cetera, et cetera, we aren't always in the driver's seat about decisions that are made about those lands. They also have federal oversight. Right. So that that conflicts with then when we talk about full inherent sovereign rights and authorities. But it's important to remember, even though we don't agree with this, this very one of the basis um, foundational principles of this modern day relationship is this idea of quasi sovereignty, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, domestic dependent sovereignty, nations, all this sort of stuff. That though, that language was created for a very specific reason. But where we are today is we are trying to reclaim our land. We are trying to reclaim our rightful place in our own indigenous lands because we are created to these lands in the way that. Others are not um, in trying to exert those inherent authorities as best we can in an unencumbered sort of fashion and manner. Um, so uh, trust is taking us a long ways. We have this criteria problem that has complicated that. Uh, but as we look forward to the future and where any country is going, the ultimate goal should be full rights and authorities to make decisions about your lands in the way that in which you decide as a government to make those decisions about those lands. That should be the ultimate goal. And by extension, to have full civil and criminal jurisdiction over anybody who sets foot on that on those lands. Right. So, between the two of you, y'all have said a lot, and I'm going to try my best to unpack a little bit more of this so that we can garner a better understanding for our audience members because you guys are in the trenches with this all the time, and so a lot of this language 
comes very naturally and and flows easily for you. But I feel like a lot of our audience members, and I will not exclude myself from that because um, I'm more communications driven. And so I want to make sure that we are providing a really good um, foundational understanding for our audience members and for me as well. Let's start off by maybe saying, what is the ultimate goal for and we'll, we'll keep it very broad for Indian country when it comes to land rights. In the most simplest of terms, I'm going to go back to the beginning of this conversation. We are talking about the inherent sovereign rights and authorities of government structures, right? This is not a race conversation. This is a government conversation as recognized in the U.S. Constitution. That's the, that's the starting point for any conversation that you can have in any country, including this one. Tribal nations are governments. Right? So if you start from that place, then forget, put any country aside for a second and take whether you're a native or non-native. Think about your, your, your basic understanding about government structures and the rights and authorities that they have. Right. Uh, the state of Alabama, the state of Tennessee, the state of whatever. Right. Um, if there are certain under- things that people understand that is the right of that state, that country, et cetera. But for a multitude of reasons, most people don't understand tribal nations as that, as nations, as government entities. There are three sovereigns in this country and the order of tribal nations first, states second, and then the United States third. But history today would tell you it's the reverse if they even acknowledge tribal nations as a government sovereign structure at all, because people aren't taught that. So they loose, they think about us as these loosely formed membership clubs, not as government entities that have government responsibilities to your citizens in the form of all the things we've talked about, public safety and justice, healthcare, social services, economics, all of those things. And that's where the challenge lays whenever we have these challenges in land reacquisition um, but to your question, the, the ultimate goal is if we're going to say we're sovereign, it's for the very reason that Liz just said, it's to be able to exert those powers without some other sovereign power trying to interfere with that. Right. Perfect. That's the goal. That's that's perfect. And that's really what I was looking for is just to kind of set that basis and that foundation of what is it that we are collectively working towards. And that is it. And one thing that I also want to touch on is. There is systemic bias written into the Constitution. There's this idea of this very um, patriarchal, um, you know, the great father and um, domestic dependence. There's a lot of that sort of language that has created a systemic issue in us acquiring those land rights. And and now there's been a huge movement of these land acknowledgements, the land back movement. Um, So where do you even begin on trying to to eradicate such foundational documents of that kind of verbiage and language? Because, you know, whenever whenever you have legislators that look to those sorts of foundational documents to say, this is where, you know, this is where about all of our laws sort of stem from and come from, but it starts there where it, 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 
it calls tribes domestic um, domestic dependents. And then whenever you start looking into treaties, you know, it's the great white father and, you know, so on and so forth. So how do you really start eradicating that verbiage and stripping the Constitution to create that more level playing field? Because it's it is systemic. And I think that's one thing that a lot of folks don't recognize and acknowledge is whenever whenever the foundational pieces and the foundational documents already have this bias that's written into it, well, how do you start overcoming that? Because you've already got such a challenge in front of you. Boy, I thought this was a conversation about land. <laughs> we, are going, we are going down a whole different we, we path. We right a lot of rabbit holes here. Uh, well, so one, one thing I would say is we challenge this very subtly in the language that we ourselves use. Um, you notice, for example, that Kiki and I introduced ourselves as citizens of our respective tribal nations, and that that wasn't an accident, that wasn't a coincidence. Um, every day we utilize language with the intent that we reinforce the idea of nationhood and government status. Um, just kind of subtly poking at at all of that sort of, you know, paternalistic um, basis for the trust model that's that's embedded in in so much of our work and and so much of what undergirds federal Indian policy. Um, you know, it, this patchwork of paternalism and you know, and at times acknowledgement of our sovereign authority, but also you know, limiting and and kind of boxing in our sovereign authority has grown up over centuries. Um, and of course, it's it's going to take some time um, to, to fully pick apart and unravel it. Um, you know, the other way you challenge that is through honesty and truth telling. Uh, one of the one of the kind of foundational approaches that this organization uses in its advocacy is what we term assertive diplomacy. And for us, that means you know, not existing in this space where we try and make policymakers feel good, um, or we try and kind of play along with with this sort of system that has has really uh, grown up uh, not not to. Uh, not to honor us as sovereigns, but really to to limit us as sovereigns. Um, it it the the cards are not stacked in our favor here, and our way of countering that is to be very honest and very direct. Um, all of course while being respectful to federal policymakers, but but to really tell it like it is. Um, you know, I think. I think one of our biggest challenges is, of course, sort of the the whitewashing of American history. Um, you know, Kiki, you can you can raise this example, but I, um, you know, one of the things that we talk about all the time uh, is the juxtaposition of the Holocaust Museum in Washington D.C. and the Museum of the American Indian. You know, the Holocaust Museum tells this really powerful narrative of what happened. Um, in Germany, in Europe, um, what what the Nazis did. Um, and nobody can set foot in that museum without under, 
understanding sort of the horrors uh, that the Holocaust wrought upon humanity. And then you walk down uh, several blocks to the Museum of the American Indian, and and there is no there is no coherent narrative except to say, you know, look at all this beautiful art that tribal nations have created, and and that also is not coincidental. Um, you know, it's really easy for this country to acknowledge atrocities that other nations have wrought upon their citizens. It is really hard for this country to acknowledge its own atrocities. Those are some really powerful words, Liz, really powerful. And I think we, whenever the Museum of the um, American Indian Museum opened in DC. I remember there were there was a busload of Fort Creeks that were there for that. Yeah, for that opening. I imagine there were quite a few tribal nations there. And, you know, I remember how excited I was to go there for the first time. I wasn't on that particular trip, but I remember um, feeling a sense of, yes, it was very beautiful and it was wonderful to see the displays of, you know, different cultural and art styles and and that sort of thing. But I felt like exactly what you hit on that storyline is really missing. And you walk away and you say, what, what change happened because of this? What, you know, what action is prompted in the way people are thinking because of this beautiful building? And it was, you know, you kind of feel this sense of um, a lost opportunity. Megan, I think that point that you just made is an important one. So the the establishment of the museum is an important one. Right? So I don't want to, to disrespect that. Absolutely. The, the story that we choose to tell in that museum is what we're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, just to add a couple of points to what Liz just mentioned, and, and her, she's exactly correct. I think that's one of the things that makes this organization unique in terms of how it chooses to engage in its advocacy from a place of truth telling um, without necessarily worrying about offending, because that's not our job. Our job is to truth tell, as Liz said. But it all starts with history, right? So when you talk about uh, domestic dependency, we got to rewind in history a little bit further from the establishment of the Constitution to where the, where the dependency actually existed, right? And when people talk about treaty making, Treaty making was so that the United States was not warring domestically and internationally, right? And then it got to a point where it didn't need that alliance anymore and it stopped treaty making, right? So people have to start these conversations about U.S. tribal relations from a place of understanding their own history. But unfortunately, most Americans don't know their history very well. Um, and when this organization adopted the change the narrative model, uh, part of it was uh, related to a report that was produced probably about a handful of years ago. Um, and one of the things that this report identified is that most history books, um, if not the greater majority of them, stopped talking about tribes at 1900. So, so we're a footnote in history. They don't think of us in a modern um, sort of way. And going back to this conversation about land and trust, um, and speaking of the museum, one of the former directors is Kevin Gover, and he was prior to that the Assistant Secretary of Indian Affairs during the Clinton administration. And he wrote a paper after he was done in office, uh, done in service, uh, talking about the trust model. So when we, when you heard Liz and I talking about trust modernization, the reason for that is in, in his article, what he says is the current trust model 
that we still use in 2023 is based upon two premises. Uh, one, that we as, as Native people are incompetent to handle our own affairs. And that's where the term trust comes from. Um, and then secondly, that we are eventually going to disappear anyways and just assimilate uh, into the United States. And that is a direct reflection of intentional policies of, of termination and assimilation. Now, neither one of those are true, but it is still the, the structure and foundation of the trust model that we navigate today. An important thing to remember when we talk about not knowing history about us, one thing that we as Native people have to own ourselves, 95% of our children go to public schools. Our children are getting that same nonsense history that that non-Native student is getting. So not only do we have to do education with non-Natives, we have to do education with our own people because they're being taught these same things, right? So that's why we talk about core to the work that we do is education to re-educate people in a proper way about this relationship and this history before then we can have the current conversation about whatever the issue is. Because if you can't have that foundation, then you're never going to have the beneficial conversation you're looking to have on whatever the topic is, because they're not going to view us in the way that they need to be viewing us. 75% of the U.S. sitting U.S. House of Representatives do not deal with tribes. They don't have them in their jurisdiction, yet they're all voting on federal Indian policy, right? So this is a problem in terms of this, this refusal as a country to talk about this story um, in an honest way. We're not looking for apologies. We're not looking to rewind time. What we're looking for is ownership and accountability as a starting point. So then we can have real conversations about rebuilding. That's right. And and you uh, wove this theme into a few of your, your statements that you made. And I'm sorry, Kiki, but whenever you were talking about the paper um, after... Um, you said his name is Kevin, correct? Kevin Gover. After he got out of um, his position with the Clinton administration and talking about those two premises that 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 trust models are built upon, like it just it hits so hard to know that that whole system is built around these two assumptions, and one being that we will disappear, and that's so. Um, I don't know. That just really that hit me. That hit me in my core. Honestly, like it, it made me feel very emotional. And I just want to acknowledge that. Um, and I have a, not, a daughter that's almost nine months old. And one concern that I have as a mother, but also as an an aunt, and um, you know, as as a person that sees all of these children in the community, all of my cousins and all of my my relations, I know that here I am 37 years old and I'm having to learn my own history. And that's been an accumulation of, of conversations and reading and research over, you know, that whole lifetime. It's not something that's available at, at somebody's fingertips. And so I think that's another thing that really, you know, and I'm going to try to bring this back around towards land, but Really, it it does go back to how how are we educating ourselves? How are we laying that foundation for our children and those future generations? Um, and making sure that they understand 
why land is so important, why our history is so important, how the two, the history, the culture, the land, it's all inextricably tied together. And um, and one thing that I have noticed um, through the years and especially working closely with the chairwoman and um, and in government relations as well is, you know, you have these cycles, these legislative cycles where, you know, there's an election. Some of the same people are elected. You have new ones. And it's just constantly this cycle of having to educate and reeducate and reeducate. And, you know, you feel like, gosh, when does that cycle get broken? And um, so I kind of I want to talk about, you know, that that's really part of the reason we launched into this podcast is because just as important as it is to educate our legislators and to share with them these stories and these and these honest truths, it is equally and just as critically important that we are launching into those grassroots efforts to educate our own people. And and that also includes our own tribal leaders, because I think there is such a fallacy in thinking that because I am born Native, I automatically have all of this knowledge that I'm just born with, like <laughs> like the ancestors just poured it into my brain. And it does not work that way. And I think that's a really important point to sort of um, maybe focus in on a little bit is to talk about how tribes, culture, their history is tied to the land and why it's so important that that we um that we hone in on that work to change those educational structures. Boy, Megan, your questions. <laughs> we could have a whole sorry, I'm not really sticking to the guide. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm trying, but it's hard. This is great. This is great well, stuff. Your questions that you just you prompted a couple of thoughts. Um, and I'm not going to go in any specific order, but I want to underscore one thing because this is something that we run up against in the advocacy space quite often. So we're talking about two things right now. So when you talk about learning all of this, you could spend a whole lifetime in this space and still not learn it all. Mm -hmm. that, that's regardless of whatever title you carry, because there's just so much there, because there's so much chaos in the there, and because it often conflicts within and of itself, right? So. We are talking about not only decades, but centuries of history that have led us up to this moment. You don't unwind that and correct that, reverse that in a small period of time. This is an investment on our part to change things over time for the very reasons that you just said, Megan, right? So we are hopeful that the seeds that this organization plants today will bear fruit in generations that follow. Because I think all of us who do this work share the same hope that our children and grandchildren who come behind us don't have to deal with the same nonsense. Yeah. That they live in a space where the United States honors its obligations to us as Native people without having to ask, without federal discretionary budget models and all that other nonsense that goes along with that. But you have to do two things in this space. And I think this is where Indian country most often has gotten it wrong. And this is why we celebrate the leadership and membership of this organization, because they've guided us, instructed us to do two things. The first is to be an expert in federal Indian policy and how to navigate that to our greatest benefit 
as much as we can, right? Federal Indian policy was not created for our benefit. It's guardrails. It's meant to limit us. So, but we still have to understand how to navigate to advance forward as best we can. But if you recognize that federal Indian policy is limiting and prohibitive in many ways, the longer term goal is all about tribal law, not federal Indian law, right? So if we as sovereigns have the right to make laws that, that, uh, govern our communities and people, that's what this should be about. But in a space where states and the federal government and the UN, even for that matter, don't recognize our nationhood status, then it's hard to navigate that way. So what we do is both. We navigate the short term as best we can for the benefit of our membership in any country overall, but also to plant those seeds for longer term um, benefit for those that come after us. But it takes a reimagination of this relationship. We spent so much time trying to become experts in federal Indian policy that we failed to understand and appreciate its limits. So this era that we find ourselves in right now is to, yes, acknowledge and celebrate that. And we've been doing that now since 75 when, when self-determination was passed in terms of federal Indian policy. Now we're trying to figure out what that next step is to get closer to what you're talking about, what you're digging for, going back to the land issue. How do we arrive at a place where we have land to execute in a sovereign way that that's not challenged by others? But we know we as a people has persevered, right? We've been through a lot over history um, and we use that as our power. So when you talk about um, not knowing this stuff, what we do have the benefit of is the wisdom from our ancestors and those that have fought these fights before, fights before us and what we learn from that. And every period in history requires something different, right? So, because as we are evolving, so is the United States, and so we are, are we as people in humanity. So, our goal organizationally is um, how do we educate everybody in the space, including ourselves, to think differently about this relationship? Um, like, one thing we haven't even touched on is the funding part of this, and there's a funding part to land. But you, as you were probably aware, porch included, when it goes after these obligations that are due to them, it's often through a grant model where they have to write a grant and ask for it. That's not diplomacy. That's mm -hmm. not payment on debt. You know, and that's not just us saying that. You look at the USCCR broken promises and quiet crisis reports from 2003 and 2018, where they are clearly saying the United States is doing a terrible job and failing at honor its, honoring its trust and treaty obligations, right? So all of this, all this work that we're doing, all that we're talking about, reclaiming land, reestablishing land, building economies is for those, those relatives who will come after us so they can focus on what they need to be focusing on, which is governing people and improving the lives of their citizens versus fighting the federal government and states to recognize their inherent rights and authorities. Liz, was there anything that you would like to add to that? I appreciate that you keep giving me openings. Um, <laughs> Sorry, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> I would just say, I think sort of going going back to lands and going back to funding, um, you know, one of the things I think folks feel fail to recognize in the lands restoration space is that 
you know, lands aren't just automatically restored to tribal nations. Uh, one is we have to purchase those lands back. Um, you know, you you aren't federally recognized and then, uh, you know, all of a sudden your land base is yours again. Um, your land base is in trust for you again. And, you know, and, and certainly there are, there are definitely scenarios where when there is a land claim settlement for a tribal nation, there are specific lands included in that. Um, but by and large, um, and, I, and I imagine that this is the experience of Porch, this is certainly the experience of my own tribal nation, um, you know, you, you have to purchase those lands. And then you are subject to the land and a trust process, which we haven't touched upon. So, you know, the land and a trust process is long. It's arduous. It's expensive. There are delays. Uh, you sometimes have to start all over again after your application to have your lands placed in trust sits for too long or an administration changes. Um, you know, again, to go back to the fact that this is not a perfect model and yet we have to work within it and it's the best that we have right now. Um, you know, this is this is an excellent example of federal bureaucracy and federal paternalism at work. You know, we have to survey the land. We have to <laughs> we have to have other people tell us, you know, whether the land, you know, where the boundaries are and what we're going to do with it and and whether, you know, whether what we plan to do with it fits into the federal government's idea of what we should do with it. Um, and it can take decades. It can take decades to have lands restored under this process. Now, certainly we've had administrations that have been better than others at working toward this, um, administrations that have set um, high, high standards for themselves in the reacquisition of lands for tribal nations. Um, and then we have land, you know, we have tribal, or excuse me, we have, we have administrations that have taken, uh, virtually no land <laughs> into trust for tribal nations. Um, and everything in between. Um, and so, you know, while everybody recognizes the huge import of lands reacquisition, um, it, it certainly isn't a, a switch flip um, in any way. One of the things that we advocate for that we feel is sort of missing from the overall lands reacquisition advocacy sphere is, you know, in addition to ensuring as you know the federal trust obligation to tribal nations is funded to its fullest extent via discretionary appropriations um, and other types of funding and programs to tribal nations the federal government needs to focus on funding those activities that cannot be turned over to tribal nations such as processing land into trust applications um, the federal government has not done a great job of funding its own functionality in in this and other spaces. Um, and, and that's something that we need to be advocating for as well. You know, we cannot deem lands and trust. That is not something that tribal nations are able to do. That requires federal action. And so the federal government really needs to ensure that it has enough employees and enough funding for those employees to be able to process those applications. And that sounds really boring and really arcane, um, but it is critically important to us being able to restore our lands. 
So I'm going to shift the conversation just a little bit. And we've talked about the, um, as, as far as like land, actual property, physical land, right? But there are a lot of things culturally that tie to land um, and a lot of land uses. So what other um, what other sorts of land uses are you seeing tribes struggle with when it comes to being able to exert their inherent rights as Native nations on their own lands? So, you know, one of the things I'm actually reviewing a set of comments on this particular issue as we speak. Um, well, not as we speak, but as soon as we end this conversation, I will turn back to those comments. Um, you know, it, Recently, um, you know, sort of the trendy land restoration purpose for tribal nations is conservation. You see a lot of not-for-profit um, land conservation foundations, land trust foundations, wanting to do conservation easements for tribal nations. Um, you see sort of the environmental community wanting to see lands conserved and patting themselves on the back when they're, you know, working with tribal nations to have lands taken into trust um, or, or turned over to tribal nations for conservation purposes. And conservation is really important. Um, and tribal nations engage in conservation, uh, both for environmental purposes and for cultural and, and sacred sites purposes. On the other hand, um, we are focused on rebuilding our economies. Um, and, you know, sometimes that means things that uh, that type of community wouldn't be supportive of. Um, sometimes that means things that aren't quite in vogue, if you will. Um, sometimes that means resource extraction on our homelands. Sometimes that means opening a business on our homelands. Um, and and when we start sort of from a position of, okay, but what are you going to do with the land? Then we're missing the whole point of land's restoration for tribal nations, which is to make those sovereign choices that we feel are the best use of those lands. Um, and, and we are not out from under the thumb of the federal government and others on the issue of lands use. Um, certainly, when one of the big uh, debates that we've engaged in on the Cartieri front um, on the congressional side uh, is over lands use. Um, we've had to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with localities, um, which are less sovereign than tribal nations, in fact, um, over, well, you know, what if, what if a tribal nation decides to open a gun range on their lands? Shouldn't, shouldn't localities, um, have the, have the opportunity to weigh in on that? Shouldn't localities have the opportunity to veto that? And the simple answer is no, absolutely not. Um, well, you, I mean, Liz, to your point, <laughs> and, um, you don't see, um, you don't see Georgia telling Alabama what they can and can't do within their boundaries. And, and that's an absolutely perfect analogy. And, and you know, they don't get a chance to weigh in on um, lottery or um, gaming or 
marijuana or medicinal uses or, you know, or taxation, for example, taxation, um, any of those things. That's right. And so I think I think it really does begin with that understanding. And Kiki, I'll kind of bring it back around full circle where whenever you're talking about tribal nations, you should be thinking of them in the context and within the framework of this isn't a tribal nation. It is, but it's a government. And I think that verbiage and that language is key to saying we're a government. We are governments, just like all of these other state governments and these municipal governments and um, and should be treated and acknowledged um, and worked with as such. Megan, one thing um, to your comment about uh, the cultural significance of land, I want to make sure that we don't um, ignore here is. And this is particularly important for this region. So overall, we've already talked about land diminishment and land loss, right? So that's a that's an issue that every tribal nation has to contend with because of history. But that's even sharper in focus in our region when it comes to land loss. And in the space of nation rebuilding, I want to be very clear on something when it comes to the, this, this culture part of the conversation. And, and Liz was talking about some comments that she's working on now, but this is in the space of other comments that we have made in the SPF space. We are fully supportive of developing our economies, developing our infrastructure, all of those things, just like any other, right? We're not trying to hold on to some historical status and existence. So we want all the same things that any other government status wants, you know, broadband and roads, and infrastructure and all these other things. But for us, it's a delicate balance between progress and also protection of culture. So one of the biggest things that we run into is, you know, for the non-native person who will easily understand why you don't bulldoze bulldoze down a church and run a pipeline through it, they don't think that same way when it comes to sacred sites in Indian country, right? So when they're talking about offshore wind development, which is an issue that we're dealing with right now, they don't think about our sacred connection to the land, culture to, you know, ties to land in the same way that they do to brick and mortar spiritual religious institutions that that they would never even think of going anywhere near. Um, And that's, again, for our region, this delicate balance is that we want all this growth, we want all this progress, but not the expense of who we are as a people. And the last thing I'll say on this question, and something Liz said made me think about it, um, she mentioned uh, a gun range. So for um, Natista for Cheyenne people, uh, uh, Bear Butte up in, uh, South Dakota is a very spiritual place for Cheyenne as well as Lakota people. For Cheyenne people, uh, it's the place, it's known as the place where the people were taught. And without getting into a whole story, um, one of our people years ago, uh, killed another man. He journeyed to, to Bear, to Bear Butte. Uh, he encountered our creator, who we call Mahale, uh, and he was given on instructions on how to live life properly, right? And in that same uh, engagement with Mahale, with Mahale, the creator, um, they get, he gifted us our medicine bundle, our four sacred arrows um, that are still part of our culture and traditions uh, to this day. Um, myself, and I've taken my, my children on a handful of occasions, uh, make that journey to Bear Butte for spiritual renewal. Um, for guidance in the same way that that individual sought that guidance. But wouldn't you know, Bear Butte in South Dakota is right adjacent to Sturgis. So every single year, we got to deal with this crowd of bike ralliers who come up to a very spiritual place and don't acknowledge it and respect it as such. 
And on the gun range, on the gun range front, um, we had to push back efforts uh, because it is a state park at the base of Bear Butte. They wanted to, the local community there, county wanted to establish a gun range at the foot of Bear Butte, uh, despite our opposition. And thankfully that hasn't happened yet, but it's a fight that was a real fight that gets reinduced every so often because the people there don't respect the meaning of what Bear Butte means to Cheyenne Lakota people. Now, Bear Butte was a church. I don't think anybody would be proposing putting a gun range at the doorstep of the church. But for us, they don't think about it the same way. Um, and there's just so many layers that go along with that as to why that is, but it speaks to cultural significance of land and the meaning that it has to us. So even though Cheyenne people through history have been dispersed to throughout other places, uh, here I am in Nashville, Tennessee, that place still holds very important meaning, right? Regardless of where you are. Um, so in a space for any country overall where land loss is real, we have to always keep focus on protection of those things that are important to us, even though we may not have current modern day jurisdictional authority over those lands and places. So a question for you. So um, I just watched the documentary Lakota versus United States. Um, Lakotas have the Black Hills, um, you know, in Washington state and those areas, you've got property and land rights collision, I, I guess you would say, when it comes to like fishing rights or hunting rights or the right to gather um, herbs and and like sacred medicinal uh, plants and stuff. What do we see um, when it comes to the Uset tribes? What sorts of issues do we see um, coming through in that in that manner? I think this the Bear Butte issue that, that Kiki touched on um, is something that we see a lot with regard to infrastructure development outside of our homelands, up and down the Uset region. Um, there is an unwillingness to acknowledge the fact that tribal nations have been here for tens of thousands of years and that we have moved um, and we have lived in places that um, are not uh, near where our jurisdictional boundaries are anymore. We have lived in places that are now underwater. Um, and at the same time, um, we know we have ancestors buried in those places. We know we have sacred sites in those places. And under several federal laws, we have the right to protect those places, whether or not they're within our jurisdictional boundaries. Um, but there is this constant push-pull between tribal nations and, and our culture and our history and our sacredness and our spirituality and development. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of this tale as old as time. Um, in, in the modern context, it means, you know, even though we, we can say this, this is a site of cultural or spiritual significance to us. And even though the law provides for the protection of those spaces, you will have federal agencies, you will have archaeologists hired by those agencies who come in and tell us, no, this isn't sacred to you. No, this is, this is merely a pile of rocks. Um, as opposed to a cultural landscape. 
Um, and, and we're, you know, up against sort of these larger entities on a daily basis, fighting for what we know is, is our history, um, fighting for what we know is an area that our ancestors lived in, fighting to make people understand that just because, you know, our, our old, uh, homelands are under water now doesn't mean there aren't items and places of significance under the water. Um, and it doesn't mean that they aren't worthy of protection, regardless of what, you know, outside priorities are. Um, you know, Kiki touched on the development of offshore wind. Um, you know, by and large, tribal nations support renewable energy development. Um, you know, we recognize that climate change is taking place. We recognize that there is an immediate need to address the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. Um, we recognize probably more than others um, because, because we see the impact of climate change on our environment, on our life ways. Um, and at the same time, we would like for the federal government to ensure that it has a plan to avoid our sacred spaces. Um, this isn't an either or proposition. This is a both and proposition. Um, but in everyone's haste to, to have wins and to roll things out quickly and to avoid doing the sort of deliberative work that is required to protect those spaces, um, that that prerogative, that directive, that um, that obligation is ignored. We have gone over our time a little bit, <laughs> and I want to be really respectful to the schedule that you guys have because I know that y'all are incredibly busy and um, and that your time is very valuable. Because I think I feel like um, I don't know what sense y'all are getting, but I feel like we could probably talk all day long and still not explore all the issues. Um, so I just want to give you an opportunity to offer um, any final thoughts to our audience about um, about land, about the cultural significance of it, or any calls to action that you would like um, our audience members to do. I would say, um, given your focus on speaking to the audience, so and I'm going to use a quick example of this as something to celebrate, but then something that we can better exemplify more consistently. So we all are aware, I think most Native people are aware of the Dakota Access Pipeline issue, right? And it was about protecting water. I think people understand clearly what that means and why that's important. And you saw many people rally around that and support Native and non-Native alike. What we don't always see from an advocacy standpoint is that same level of engagement on all issues that matter to us. You know, one of the biggest challenges in Cartier was for the first couple of years in the advocacy space, getting the rest of any country to acknowledge that it was even a problem for them. Um, now we've since evolved from that space to get more of any country to understand that while the Cartier fee to trust issue is the thing that we talk about, it's the principles underneath it that we're really talking about um, that impact us all. So I think at the individual Indian level, there has to be more awareness of the very things that we just started exploring today uh, to that, have that same level of passion to make a difference and to support 
uh, all these things that we're talking about. You know, like one of the things that we didn't even talk about today, you know, not only is land foundational, so is the greater undergoard of the constitutionality of federal Indian law, right? It, what, it's what creates this special and unique relationship, which is why we are different, again, which is not based on race, which is based upon government rec- status recognition in the U.S. Constitution. And we're battling those fights all the time. But because that's a much more complex matter than water, it's harder to get people to rally around it. So that's why I appreciate earlier in this conversation, you kind of did a reset to help the audience understand what we were talking about. You have to spend some time in constitutionality, federally in law to be able to navigate those waters in the way that we're talking about, right? So we all as Native people have to make that commitment to ourselves to invest our time and energy that way, but that commitment to one another. Because that understanding is necessary to do this work, whether you're on the advocacy space, whether you are a tribal leader, whether you are an everyday citizen, everybody has to understand this this stuff. Uh, because if we don't understand it, then we're not going to be able to adequately protect it. And then things like our, that we're talking about stay with land before we know it won't be there anymore for us to even have a conversation about because they will be, have, have been successful with their assimilation, termination endeavors. So being awake to these things is extremely important and understanding them um, to navigate this forward to a different sort of experience in this U.S. tribe nation diplomacy space. Um, but there's a lot that has to be done. Um, I know you keep joking about it, but we, we talk about this all the time, you know, whether it's with Supreme Court justices who could use a full coursework within their legal sphere. Uh, whether it's with legislators in Congress or the Senate who, who don't understand these things either, uh, whether it's our own people, there needs to be a lot of education in the space to then be able to have deeper conversations about land, why it's important. And I'm talking beyond the cultural significance, the traditional pieces of it um, that I think we all appreciate and understand and why it's so important to protect that at all costs. Uh, if we don't have that, if we don't have land as the basis to exert our sovereign authorities, what are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Right. We need that. And we need to be rebuilding our nations with land center to those efforts um, and protecting that at all costs and always reminding ourselves this isn't these lands weren't granted to us. These are our lands uh, and the lands that we reacquired to Liz's point that we are have stolen and have to re rebuy. I mean, just just let that sit with you for a minute. The more you think about that. Yeah. Right. So in the nation, the, the most powerful and wealthy nation that history has ever known. This is our modern day reality. Um, and we have to be committed to navigating that in an honest, direct, and truthful way. And that starts with each one of us. I agree so much. And and one thing, um, just to further kind of capture what you're saying, and, and one thing that we didn't have time to really focus in on is how closely one's identity is tied to land. Because, you know, you hear people say, well, I'm going home. Where is home? Home is tied to a specific place, a specific land mass. And without that tie, you know, you find yourself searching for who who am I? And the federal acknowledgement process is so deeply tied to this sense of community, this sense of um, what sets you apart culturally and your language. And all of those things are certainly deeply embedded in um in the land as well. And Liz, I'll offer you the same um, opportunity to share any final thoughts um, with our audience. I think I would just co-sign on Kiki's final thoughts. Um, you know, I, I agree. Um, I think 
I think that when we are talking about, you know, I think I think you're so eloquent in talking about home, um, especially for those of us who have relocated away from our tribal homelands, um, and especially for those of us who live in Washington, D.C. Um, D.C., even though I've been here for 16 years, is not my home. Um, I, I own property here. Um, but when I say home, I, I mean home to Mohegan. What sets us apart culturally are those collective experiences that we have as a people experiencing things in the same place, experiencing our cultures together, experiencing sort of representative government together. You know, I think I think one of the things that I would underscore for individual Native people is, you know, we all need to be supportive of our tribal nation government status. Um, this doesn't necessarily mean supporting those individuals who have been elected or appointed to represent us. That's a separate issue. Um, but always fighting for fighting for um, and fighting for the acknowledgement of our sovereign status um, as governments. And that's something that as as individual Native people, we all need to fully absorb and appreciate. Um, you know, this is one of those scenarios where regardless of what goes on in council and regardless of what goes on in our community, we, we do all need to stand toe to toe um, and ensure that we have the opportunity to be seen as as a sovereign nation um, by other units of government. Um, and so that's something that I would underscore, sort of the difference between our internal politicking, um, which is its own thing, and, and you know, our nationhood status, um, the, the internal versus the external. Liz, can I just add to that? Um, I know it may sound silly to even say it, but to borrow from Kennedy, right? This, it's a shift of mindset, right? It's not about what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, right? That's what we're talking about here. What can we as individual citizens, whether we live directly within those jurisdictions or not, what can we do to help strengthen not only our individual tribal nation, but the collection of tribal nations collectively, right? That's what we're trying to do this work for. Um, so for us at USET, um, what we are trying to do who are removed, um, living in whether it's Nashville or DC, we're trying to make an impact on the lives of our relatives, whether they're our direct relatives or they're all of our indigenous relations. Uh, in a positive sort of way. Um, but it requires a rethinking about how we think about this relationship and then what our responsibility is back to our respective nations and any country as a whole. So I want to close out um, by saying, first of all, Mido, thank you both so, so much. I think this time has been incredibly enriching for me personally, but I know that it's going to be exponentially enriching for our audience members as well. And I hope that anyone who is listening um, has a, a deeper understanding of land rights as they apply not to just one tribal nation, but to all of our tribal nations. And 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 that reaches far beyond those 33 USET tribes. Um, I feel like I would not be doing um be doing our audience members justice if I did not ask, what are some good resources? We talked a lot about educating ourselves, about educating others. And if there's, um, if there's something that y'all can, some documents or some links that y'all want to email me and that we could share with our audience members afterwards. But I just want to give you, um, both an opportunity. If you have some 
um, good resources that you're willing to share with our audience members so that they can ensure that they're not doing just a Google search and reading whatever comes across there because Google, as much as I love Google, as much as I love like the chat GPT and all of those things, um, they're not always <laughs> the most reliable and you have to do some fact checking. But um, because both of you are in this space all the time, um, I really wanted to to ask both of you, what are some reliable, good resources that we could recommend for those that are willing to take the extra to, to take it a step further to say, you know, what, I don't know a lot about these land issues, but I recognize they're incredibly important and they're critical to the furtherance of who we are as tribal people and tribal nations. What can they do to better um, better their understanding and and to um, really activate that that next step of of agency and advocacy for on, on an individual level? What are some resources you would recommend? Be specifically, and we will send them to you, and you can share with your audience. Perfect. Um, and I will just say the two that I'm going to, are going to reference are because there are a multitude of resources. Don't get me wrong, but the way in which this organization and our membership chooses to talk about this relationship and this history is very specific. I think from you can gather from this conversation today. So when we went looking for that sort of narrative, we couldn't find it. So what we decided to do was write it ourselves. And that's exactly what we did. So there are two pieces specifically. There is a you said education book, which I think will have value to your membership at porch for a variety of reasons. Um, but includes a U.S. tribal nations history component to that. The second piece is a little bit more involved, but there is a specific section that I would direct you to within it. It's, it's a Marshall Plan for Tribal Nations. And I'm not going to get into the depths of what that even means. That's um, another podcast. <laughs> but within that um, Marshall Plan white paper is a whole section on the basis of the relationship, its origins, its failures, and why the United States needs to navigate its relationship with us differently from an investment in tribal nation rebuilding perspective. So I'm not suggesting, even though we would love for your audience to read front to end both of those, but those specific sections within those two reports, I think are good starting points um, for port citizens to better understand kind of how we are talking about this work and how we're navigating this work. And then if there's interest beyond that, we have many other things that we can offer as that interest grows. Perfect. Thank you. Liz, is there anything, any other additional resources that come to mind for you? I, you know, I think that's plenty of reading. Um, (laughs) As Kiki said, you know, we have, we have just a multitude of resources that we have produced. Um, You know, I guess one of the other um, items that I would plug, um, and this is nice and short as well, uh, Kiki and I, um, in our in our early years together, uh, wrote an op-ed called um, "From Consultation to Consent," um, and not not to again kind of take us off um, on another pathway, um, but one of the sort of fundamental and basic ways that the federal government relates to tribal nations is through the consultation process. Right, um, the federal government. Uh, has to communicate with us when it is considering an action that would affect us. Um, and in a perfect world, seek our consent for that action. Now, is that what happens right now? Absolutely not. But it's something that we're advocating for. That is, that is one of our uh, additional next steps in full recognition of us as sovereigns, right? You know, the federal government 
wouldn't just walk all over Canada. Um, you know, it wouldn't take action on Canadian lands without seeking the consent of, of the Canadian government. But that's exactly what it does with tribal nations. Um, it, often consultation is merely a check the box uh, type of exercise where the federal government tells us what they are going to do and then they do it, um, as opposed to saying, um, we are asking for your consent. Um, and if we can't gain your consent with this proposal, then how can we modify it so that um, both parties are agreeable to it? So that's that's another um, short item to, to give you a flavor for our organizational philosophy. Megan, just one additional thing that I would offer and we can send this to, it's more involved, but it, it we're, so, so we've, for the most part, they talked about the domestic relationship. We haven't talked about the international space, mm-hmm. uh, which has relevance to this conversation as well. And in that international space is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and the articles and principles that go along with that. Um, and the United States was last to, you know, endorse, uh, UNDRIP, but not needless to say, there is a good kind of like, summary version of that, that if people are interested in kind of looking at what those articles are and what it says about the rights of Indigenous people, I think that's an important piece as well. So we'll send that along also. Fantastic. Well, thank you again so much, Mado. I have thoroughly enjoyed my time with both of you. I know that I've seen you both in passing um, over the years at UCET and DC and um, and all of that. And it's really nice to actually be able to connect with you. I wish that it were in person and face-to-face, but you know what? We have learned to get along with virtual just fine. Um, and I hope that um, you both have a wonderful rest of the day and the week. But more than that, I really um, appreciate the work that you both do individually and collectively um, on behalf of our USIT tribes, but also Indian country at large and, and across the nation. Um, it is work that is exponentially important. I don't think it always gets the recognition and the credit that it deserves. And there's a lot of times that there are the conversations and the emails and the phone calls and the text messages, you know, trying to to keep tribal nations front of mind for our legislators and for those that are also advocating on behalf of us that doesn't always um, get that acknowledgement. But I just want to acknowledge today and in this space that I am personally so um, thankful for the work that y'all do um, and very supportive of it. And if there's anything that we can do, you know, and I know that we already have this wonderful working relationship. Porch has been a USET tribe for I couldn't even tell you how long, but um, we're very thankful for the work that USET does on on our behalf and and for all of our fellow 33 tribes in, in Indian country at large. So thank you all very much. And thank you for spending time with me today here at A Place Called Porch. It was our pleasure. We appreciate it. <laughs> thank you, Megan. Thank you for listening to A Place Called Porch. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. You can visit our website, porchcreekindians.org, for more information, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram.